This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. That is not the Jewish view of marriage. The Jewish view of marriage is ah. Say that one more time. Oh, that's good. The purpose of marriage in the Bible, basically, there's a couple of purposes which we're going to discuss. The first purpose of, of marriage in the Torah is the idea of companionship. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2. It's not good for a person to be alone. I will make a helpmeet. I'll make a helper for man. And the Torah continues, and therefore a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and become one flesh. So there's a perspective over here. The Jewish perspective is that husband and wife become one flesh not just one flesh, and we're going to discuss mentally how close should it be. We're going to discuss that. It's not so clear mentally how close they should be. But one flesh for sure. What does that mean, one flesh? Leaving one's parents. A person needs independence. To be a successful marriage, there has to be independence from one's parents. So what first purpose of marriage is companionship. It's not good for a person to be alone. Companionship is very important. The second idea of marriage is, we all know, the Bible tells us in the first chapter, verse 28, urvu, increase and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So these are two central purposes of marriage in Jewish tradition. The first one is lifelong companionship. It's very important to have a lifelong companion. And the second one is the nurturing of a family. Two critical concepts which Jews have given to the world, companionship and family. There's also a third purpose, which is not mentioned explicitly, but it's implicit. It's implicit because there are negative commandments in the Torah, which are of vital positive significance to the welfare of society. And these are the constraints the Torah mentions on illicit sexual relations. So there are a whole bunch of laws which we read on Yom Kippur, which the Torah tells us, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. Don't have these kind of unions. So what the Torah is telling us negatively is the positive. Don't do these unions, do the positive unions. So it's implicit, it's not explicit, but it's implicit. Rabbinic teaching sees celibacy, remaining single, as unnatural. It is not he who marries who sins, as the Christians the early Catholics said, but the sinner is the unmarried person who spends their days in sinful thoughts. I'm not talking about women now. I don't know anything about the psyche of women. But a man who comes along and says, I don't have any dirty thoughts, is not a man. There's something wrong with him. Especially a single man, it's much worse when you're, mar- it's much worse when you're single than when you're married. Obviously, there are exceptions to the rule. Uh, I'm not mentioning any names. Um... But that is the Jewish tradition is, it's much worse when a person is single, and therefore, there's no holiness if a person is single. Where do we see this? The high priest had to be married. To be on the Sanhedrin, you had to, have, you had to be married, and you had to have children. Why? Holiness is only through marriage, and that's why the word for marriage in Hebrew is kiddushin, which comes from the word kadosh, which means Holy. So there's three reasons so far we've given. The first one is companionship. The second one is 
children. The third one is holiness. To be moral and to be holy is only through marriage. The fourth purpose of marriage is Talmudic. The Talmud stresses, a person who is not married is not complete. A person lives without joy, without blessing, without goodness, without Torah, and without peace. A person who is not married may not officiate as high priest in Yom Kippur, or even a chazan or shaliyat tzibur or a cantor for the high holidays has to be married. The Code of Jewish Law tells us the cantor has to be married. Whereas we recognize that sexual desire is not evil or shameful, when it is regulated and controlled in marriage, it serves beneficial ends. It's not evil, it's not shameful, and it can be holy in a marriage. So marriage is so important that there are three things you're allowed to sell a Sefer Torah for. What are the three things you're allowed to sell a Sefer Torah for? To save a life, obviously you can do anything. You can break any mitzvah to save a life. Except for three. What are the three you can't do to save a life? Murder. At least you can't murder anyone else to save your own life. Immorality, adultery, incest, or idolatry. Three things a person cannot do to save their own lives. Otherwise, a person can break any mitzvah to save a life. You can eat in Yom Kippur, you can break Shabbat, you can do anything to save a life. You can eat pork, you can do anything to save a life. What else can a person do to save a, sell a Sefer Torah for? What can he sell a Sefer Torah for? There are three major things. What are the three? One of them is, in order to learn Torah. I have no time to learn. I have to earn a living, but I have a big Sefer Torah at my home. Sell the Torah, the rabbis say, to give yourself time to learn. There's no point in having books in your house which are unread. A person has to have time to study them. So this, a person is allowed to sell a Torah in order to study the Torah. It's an irony. You have to sell it in order to study it. But what's more important, the book on the shelf or the study? So the answer is the study is more important. What's the second thing a person is allowed to sell a Sefer Torah for? To redeem captives. There's a person being held hostage and they need a ransom. We're allowed to sell a Torah in order to redeem captives. And the third reason third, uh, a person can sell a Sefer Torah for is for the sake of marriage. A person says, you know what, I cannot afford to get married. In those days, you need a large dowry to get married. A person is allowed to sell a Torah in order to get married. That's the importance of marriage. So Talmud says one should never approach marriage lightly. And an individual must choose wisely. Early marriage was always preferred in the time of the Talmud. Perikei Avot, the Mishnah of Avot, which is Ethics of the Fathers, lists the different ages for various things. And chapter 5, Mishnah 21, lists different ages for different things. Five-year-old starts learning the Chumash, starts learning the Torah, the Bible, five books of Moses. Ten years old, he starts learning the Mishnah. The age of 15, he starts learning Talmud. And the age of 18, he gets married. Shmona Yisrael Chupah. The Talmud tells us in those days, 18 was already mature. By the age of six, they already left school usually. There was no school. Until 150 years ago, or even 100 years ago, there were no schools. Think about it. The only kids who ever got education were Jewish kids. The only kids who knew how to read and write were Jewish kids until about 150 years ago. You look back at history, schooling was not compulsory. So when was schooling compulsory? I don't remember. It's very recent, within the last century or so. 1910, something like that. There was no compulsory education. People just, uh, whatever, six-year-olds would help on the farm, 
they would help in the mines in England. They were in the mines already at age of six. You have to remember what society was like. Only in, in Jewish society, the Rambam says, if a town has no school, you're not allowed to live in that town. In a town with no school, you're not allowed to live there. If the kids are not being educated, you're not allowed to live in a town where there's no schools. So that was a totally different approach. 18 already was considered mature enough to get married. And it's not good to delay it. A person should be married by the age of 20. That was in those days' society. We're going to talk about today. But early in those societies, a person should be married early. The only excuse in those days for not getting married was, first one was a person who was so involved with Torah study, couldn't get married. Too involved with his Torah studies. Plus, he had to be in control of his desires. And the person says, you know what, I can't control myself. I have to fool around on the side. Then obviously, get married. Tell the person, we'll throw him out of the yeshiva. Get out of here, you're not, you're not fit to be here. You have other things to do, get married. That's number one priority. First thing is to control your desires and then come back and learn. So that's uh, the Torah. The perspective is to try and get married as soon as possible. Um, where do we see this concept? There's also a concept in terms of what we're going to talk about today's day and age. The Bible talks about a war. The Bible in Deuteronomy 20 discusses who should be sent home from the army. And there are four categories of people who are sent home from the army. Now, we have to discuss, in Jewish law, there are two kinds of wars. There's one kind of war which is called a milchemet mitzvah. Everyone has to go and fight. For instance, a defensive war. If Israel is attacked, everyone has to go and fight. Men, women, children, whoever can defend the borders, whatever the state wants, whoever the state wants, they can enforce. They have the rights to come along and enforce people to go ahead and fight. They send you to the front lines, you have to go. The state is at risk. Everyone's lives are in danger. Pikuach nefesh, everyone has to fight. That's a milchemet mitzvah, a war of a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to fight. The second kind of war is a milchemet reshut. If the government decides, you know what, we need more territory. We need the oil wells of Saudi Arabia. There's no danger to life. So there the Torah restricts who goes into the army. You cannot take everyone into the army. There are four categories of people who are, not, who are sent home from the army. Who are they? First category. A newly married. Newlyweds. Sent home. I want to give you the order in the Torah because it's very important what the order is. The first category of, of order in the Torah is a person who built a house and did not live in it. Go home. Your mind is in the house. Your mind is not in the battle. You're just going to lower the morale of the other people in the army. Again, we're talking about Milchemet Rashut. We are talking about uh, where it's not a mitzvah to fight. It's just Rashut. It's just going to occupy other territory, to expand the borders. Secondly is a person who planted a vineyard. A person who planted a vineyard didn't drink the, didn't drink the wine yet. His mind is on his wine. Hey, what's the use? I just planted my trees. I didn't see any grapes. His mind is going to be concentrated, focusing on his vineyard. He's not going to be focusing on the army. He's not going to be focusing on the battle. Send him home. And the third category is, as we said, person just got home, just got married. Newlyweds within a year. This is Jewish law, by the way. Person just gets married. He's not allowed to go away and leave his wife or vice versa for, for one whole year. Unless it's a lot of there's business involved and she forgives him. That's the only case where it's allowed, but otherwise a person shouldn't leave his wife or vice versa the first year of marriage. It's very bad for the marriage because that's the, the time you need to cement the relationship. The first year is critical. I say the first 10 years are critical. <laughs> you can only really start relaxing after 10 years, and even then not. You can never relax in a marriage. For those who think marriage is easy, it's not. It's something you have to keep on putting energy in. You've got to keep on revitalizing. So there are four categories of people who are sent back from the army. First, a person who built a house and did not live in it. A person who planted a vineyard and did not eat the fruit. A person who was recently married, first year. And number four is 
A person who is scared, go home. Now there's a commentary which says, why are there four? Why were these four included? And the answer, as he says, is the first three were included not to shame the fourth category. Really, the Torah is trying to send away those who are scared. Go away, go home. You're scared, go home. But we don't want to shame you in public. So what do we do? We include this in other categories. You built a house. How do I know why you're going home? Maybe you're in the first three categories. Who says you're scared? So we tell all these people to go home just to hide the fact that this guy is going home. We don't want a person who's scared to go in the army. Why? It's bad for morale. But that was, uh, I mean, if you look at the story of Gidon in the, t- in the Tanakh, there's a very beautiful story of Gidon. Gidon has to fight the Midianites. And uh, he collects a massive army, a couple of 30,000, 30, 40,000 people. God tells him, Gidon, you've got too many people here. Tell people to go home. Whoever wants to go home, go home. So everyone goes home. He's left with 3,000. I can't remember the numbers exactly. God says, Gidon, you've got too many people in the army. Send them home. They won't go home. Okay, take them to the stream and let them drink water. Whoever bows down to drink, send him home. Whoever lifts up the water and drinks it standing up, stay in your army. He's left with 300 men in his army to fight the Midianites, a tremendous army. And what's the moral of the story is, don't worry, if God's on your side, it doesn't matter how many people you have in your army. And that's one of the modern miracles we see today. Here's Israel. You look in the map, it's not even on the map. You can't see it on the map. If you look at the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, you see the word Israel on the sea. And you see Jordan on the side, and Syria, and Egypt. And here we are, and there's 200 million Arabs around us, surrounded 4 million Jews. And uh, what are they scared of? It doesn't make logical sense. What are they scared of? If they had a jihad, who knows what would happen? But uh, that's one of the modern miracles which we see. So it's not numbers. There's more than numbers. It's morale. It's technology. It's other things. And God's also in the equation. So by the way, from this, Maimonides learns a practical idea. The practical idea is, why does the Torah list it in this order? First build a house, vineyard, then marry. That's what Ramam says. Ramam says, a person has to be practical. You don't get married without a roof over your head and without a means of sustenance, without a means of support. So that is the way of the fools. The fools get married, no house over, no house. Doesn't mean you have to buy a house, it means you have to rent a house. A person's got to be in a position to have a roof over their heads. No use getting married without being in that position. Similarly, a person has to have a means of sustenance, which is, in those days, they had vineyards, it was agricultural. So that's what the Torah is teaching us, just by the order. It's so critical to see the order of the verses. Build a house, plant your vineyard, and get married. That's the order of the verses. So, in today's day and age, it takes a bit longer. For a person to get a li- earn a living and be self-supporting, it takes a bit longer. So, as soon as a person can be self-supporting, this is when the mitzvah kicks in. The mitzvah kicks in when a person can be self-supporting. If the couple can be self-supporting, then there's a mitzvah to get married. Because they're too young to be self-supporting. So usually by the time a person finishes college, age of 22, 23, and they get a job, and they can manage to rent an apartment and support a family, whatever it is, that's when there's a mitzvah straight away in Jewish law today to get married. So Jewish law today would say around 23, 24, that's the mitzvah to get married. Don't delay too long. We know that everyone has a clock inside. There's an internal clock, especially women, don't delay too long, and then a person delays too long, they will regret it afterwards. I'm, I'm telling you from experience. A person who delays too long will regret it afterwards. Don't wait too long. Spread the message. Don't wait too long. Unfortunately, it's one of the diseases of today is people wait too long. And then even when they get married, they wait too long to have kids. Uh, there's uh, two phrases. Oink and dink. Oink and dink. What's oink and dink? What's oink? One income, no kids. Dink is double income, no kids. 
oink and dink. Today, a lot of couples, oink and dink. One income, no kids. Double income, no kids. Where are the kids? Oh, I forgot about the kids. You know, I'm building a house. I'm real, a beautiful house. I'm earning a living and this and that. And, but uh, you know what? I forgot what it's all for. I forgot about the kids. So that's a very practical idea is, I'll, answer, I'll take questions in the end. Um, practical idea is that be practical. Get a roof over the head, earn a living, then get married. So I say today it's about 24, 25. It depends on the person. When a person's stable, when they're mature enough to be able to support themselves and support their family. The Talmud advises women to marry early. In fact, it was regarded as parental responsibility. How do we know it's parental responsibility? It's, it's the parents who have to marry off their daughters. It's an obligation of the parents. With the sons, it's an obligation of the child to find his own wife. Parents are not involved. When it comes to the daughter, it's the parents' responsibility to find a match for their daughter. If you've seen Fiddle on the Roof, you'll understand. <laughs> you saw the movie, Fiddle on the Roof. But um, where do we learn this from? It's a verse in Leviticus. The Bible tells us. Interesting verse. Profane not your daughter to make her a harlot. What does that mean? That means to raise a girl, like, uh, I can't mention any names, but you all know this famous Jewish girl, or half-Jewish girl. Not to raise a girl immoral. What do you mean not to raise a girl? Make sure she goes on the straight path. How would you make sure she goes on the straight path? Get her married early. That's why she's on the straight and narrow. And that's an obligation of the parents. However, we must emphasize, Jewish marriage is not designed for the ethical management of sex. Nor is it a concession to human weakness. Jewish marriage makes its appearance within the natural order of creation. It's not a law which is made by Moses later on. It's right at the beginning of the Torah, before, right at the early stages of creation. It's a blessing from God. It's right at the beginning, before anything about all the deviations and all the immoralities. It's way before that. The purpose of the creation of marriage is stated in five words. Lotov hiot adam levado. It is not good for a person to be alone. Five words. It's not good for a person to be alone. That's where marriage comes into play. The first time we see marriage is it's a social thing. It's social. It's a social idea where a person who is alone is dangerous, vulnerable. We have this today, especially in society with a lot of single people, and there's so much loneliness. And especially when people get older, there's so much loneliness involved. It's not good for a person to be alone. Marriage was not an afterthought designed to control passions. It was part of the natural order of human society, built into human society from the very beginnings. The moment we are born, we are destined for marriage. Think about it. What is the blessing for a newborn baby boy at the, at the Brit? Any ideas? The Torah, chupa ul-ma'asim tovim. Torah, he learned Torah. He'll get to his chupa, which is marriage. And ma'asim tovim, he'll have good deeds. You want three things from the kid. You want him to be learned, married, and have good deeds. Three things. We pray for the Brit Mirah. Eight days old. Come on, give the guy a break. We're really looking forward for his marriage. Give the guy a kid a break. Come on. We're looking forward to his marriage already. And for a girl, what's the blessing for a girl at the naming ceremony? And the naming ceremony could be right away. She's a little baby right now. She's just born. What do we say? We're praying for the parents to see the, the girl's joy and her marriage. Straight away, the kid's just born. Come on, give a guy a break. There's no breaks. This is the purpose of creation. 
the purpose of creation. The Bible spells out the first time. The Bible talks about creation of man right at the beginning. It's not good for a person to be alone. The main function of marriage is to enhance personal growth. The basic God created human unit is man and woman. That's the basic God created human unit. Man and woman. One flesh complementing each other. Basar Echad. One flesh. Man alone or woman alone constitutes only half of this unit. And we're going through life looking for the other half. Every single guy out there is looking for his other half. Every single girl out there is looking for her other half. Where's the other half? The Zohar, which is a Kabbalah, puts it very succinctly. Bar Nash, a man or a human being, below itata, without a wife, plagufa, is half a body. Person's half. How many, so many white halves walking around without this other side? We're always looking for a better half, right? Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch was a famous German rabbi. You heard of him? Hirsch. He wrote the Hirsch Chumash. Hirsch. Samson Rafael Hirsch was a famous rabbi in Frankfurt. Um, he wrote some famous books. If you got it, we have some in the library. Chorev, which is another word for Sinai, Mount Sinai. And uh, he wrote the 15 letters, very important uh, works. Um, we've got many, many books by Samson Rafael Hirsch, translated from German into English now. Um, his community, there's a community, the, the German community in uh, Washington Heights, in, Manha- in uh, the Bronx, still going today. That's uh, his legacy from Frankfurt. They moved here before the war, and it continues. He has an interesting commentary on why is a bride, what's the word in Hebrew for a bride? Kala, right? Where does this word kala come from? What does kala mean? Kala is a bride. What does kala come from? So he said it's interesting because when the Jews built a sanctuary in the, ta- in, the, in, the, in the wilderness, there was a portable sanctuary which the, which the Jews built before they got the temple. They had a portable sanctuary they would take apart and put together again every time they moved. It says when they completed the sanctuary, the words used in Hebrew is, Biyom kalot et ha-mishkan. When they finished, they completed the mishkan. So he says the word kala means completion. She is completed, and he is completed. When the bridegroom meets his kala, he meets his completion. It's his other half. The word kala means completion. It's a very beautiful idea. So in marriage, the partners complete and fulfill each other. Rabbi Soloveitchik, who is uh, one of the heads of Yeshiva University, passed away, unfortunately describes how Maimonides describes three different kinds of friendships. He goes through different orders of friendship and categories within marriage. There are three different categories of friendship within marriage. The first category of friendship is chaver ledavar, a friend for a certain purpose. What does that mean? That means a utilitarian arrangement. This person is a good provider, I'm his friend. She looks beautiful, I'm her friend. For a specific purpose, we are friends. Once that purpose dissolves, the friendship goes. And this is brought down in the Mishnah Berkei Avot again, is when a person has a relationship with someone just for the sake of some other motive, when that motive goes, the friendship goes out the window. So that's called Chavele Davar. It's a utilitarian approach. When the usefulness disappears, the bond of love dissolves. The second idea of friendship in marriage is chaver le da'aga. Da'aga is worries. 
I need a friend to share my worries with. I need a companion. We all do. We need companions to come, off, come home and let off steam to. Come home. Hard day's work. This one insulted me. This one insulted me. I come home. My wife is there. Oh, dear. You wouldn't believe what happened to me today. Where do we see this? So clearly it's in the Purim story. Haman comes home from the party and he's complaining about Mordechai. Who does he complain to? His wife. Zeresh Ishtov and all his friends and family. We need someone to talk to. That's a chavir daga. That's a friend to share sorrows with. We need someone to share sorrows, troubles, joy. We need this in order to lighten our load. Joys are multiplied and sorrows are diminished when we share them with other people. The third category of friends is chavir ledea. Chavir ledea, means mind. A friend of the mind. A joining of the minds. A joint dedication to common goals. Both dream of realizing great ideals with a readiness to sacrifice for their attainment. So marriage must at least partake of the first and second uh, forms of relationship, which is a utilitarian approach. Part of it is I give, I take, I, she gives, she takes. Utilitarian, we both give and both, both take. And it has to be also which is we share worries, we share sorrows. The third level, which is sharing the mind, that's a different level, that's a higher level. First, the marriage is going to start off gradually. You need at least the first two approaches. The third level, hopefully, will be built up over time. And we're going to discuss that. That's complicated. It's not so simple how much to share, how much not to share. Companionship. We said the main function of marriage is companionship. It's not good for a person to be alone. The years of romance and sexual activity are shorter and less enduring than the years of sustained lifelong friendship into old age. And people, you know, when people are young, that's all they think about is the bed. And then when they mature, you know, the bed is not so important anymore. What's more important is friendship. What's more important is companionship. Someone to talk to, someone to come home to, someone to unwind with. And that's unfortunate. With people who live with that misconception, their marriages don't last very long. Because how long can you live on a high without burning out or burning the other person out? very hard um, so um, companionship is really the most important thing the years of sustained lifelong friendship into old age are very very important companionship is the most important ingredient in marriage and must precede true love companionship comes before love because you can't love someone if you can't be a friend to them first stage is friendship companionship and then comes love two of the seven blessings there are seven blessings under the chuppah called the shiva brachot Seven blessings. Two of these seven discuss friendship. Two of the seven blessings are all about friendship. Samech tisamach. Re'im ahubim. We're praying to God to give joy to these beloved friends. Just like you did previously to the beloved in the Garden of Eden. So we're asking God, just like He made Adam and Eve happy in the Garden of Eden, so also make these two friends. We talk about the the Khatan, the bride and groom, as friends. And the second blessing is Asher Baras Asom Vesimcha, Khatan Vekala, Ava Achva, Gila Ditsa, Shalom Vereut. It's created joy and gladness, bridegroom and bride, laughter and exaltation, pleasure and delight, love, fellowship, peace and companionship. So again, in both these blessings we mentioned companionship. Re'im Ahuvim, beloved friends. And Shalom Vereut. Peace and companionship. Peace and harmony in the relationship. 
If you notice, these seven blessings, there's no blessing over procreation. We don't mention children in the seven blessings. It's interesting. Why is there no blessing? It's a mitzvah to have children. Why is there no blessing before having children? You think in the seven blessings, there'd be one blessing at least. Uh, thank God for uh, creating uh, children, or thank God for allowing us to be able to have children, whatever it is. And the answer to Rabbi David Abu Darham, who's a very famous uh, Sephardic scholar, questions why the seven blessings do not include a blessing over the mitzvah of procreation. His answer is that these blessings are used at every single wedding, even at the wedding of people who cannot have children. And therefore we see that what? Having children has nothing to do with gay marriage. The whole purpose of marriage is companionship. Children are a byproduct of that. It's a mitzvah, but it's a byproduct. The main function is companionship, and the proof is in the seven blessings. The seven blessings remain the same. There's no blessing for children in the marriage. Yes, go ahead. Can't control himself. Yes. That's why I'm giving this class. I'm giving the class to tell you why Marriage is not just for children, but it is also, and the Torah says explicitly, it's not good for a person to be alone. I didn't say you shouldn't have children. Very, very careful. We've got to be very careful over here. I didn't say you shouldn't have children. I said that the, the, one of the main purposes of marriage is companionship. If you cannot have children, should you get married? Answer is yes. doesn't matter how old a person is. It's not good for a person to be alone. Whether you can have children or not have children, that's another issue. That's a separate mitzvah. There's two mitzvot over here. One mitzvah is, it's not good to be alone. The second mitzvah is, have children. If I choose to get married, but I choose not to have children, I'm still doing one of them. I'm still not being alone. The Torah's view is, it's not good for a person to be alone. So one, there's two separate issues over here. One is the issue of companionship, and the other one is the issue of children. Two separate issues. Well, they're linked in a certain way because you can't have children without going through it. Well, you can in a certain way. You can. If you get a, you know, today you can get a, who knows what. Um, right? There's ways of doing it. Uh, test your babies and all sorts of things today which are possible. A person can do his mitzvah without getting married, technically. But it's not good for a person, even if a person already had children and they're divorced, they still have to get married again. Person had children, they're 80 years old. If they can, and they're self supporting, and they're self, uh, they can function, get married again. Why not? It's not good for a person, I'll say it again, it's not good for a person to be alone. Totally separate issue. Two, two completely different issues. So, therefore, a person who cannot get children should marry so as not to be alone. Adam was a natural being in the first creation. You look at the Torah, it talks about two creations of man. I talked about it. Two, two completely different issues. So therefore, a person who cannot get children should marry, so as not to be alone. Adam was a natural being in the first creation. You look at the Torah, it talks about two creations of man. I talked about it in my, in my series on evolution, science and evolution. There's two different stories of creation of man. If you look at the Bible, the first story of creation of man, it says, Zacharun keva bara utam. God creates 
male and female, he created them. doesn't say how many he created. That's the first account of creation. And then again, after the creation of the world, there's another account, chapter 2. talks about a man was alone. What happened? God already created them. Why is man alone the second time? So one explanation is there are two different levels of creation. Adam 1 and Adam 2, what we call Adam 1 and Adam 2. In the first creation, man was a natural being akin to the animals that surrounded him. In the second account of creation, Adam and Eve were endowed with spiritual dimensions. They rose above their natural environment and they could relate to God. Nachmanides Ramban, who was a great Kabbalist and big Spanish scholar, he says in Genesis 2.18, whenever the Torah used the word tov, by every day of creation it says God said it was tov God saw what he had done it was good you know when uh, General Motors makes a new motor car they say it's fantastic it's wonderful it's great when God created all he said was it was good which day? Shlishi Pamayim Tov Pamayim Tov right very good Pamayim Tov okay Okay, very good. Excellent. He knows his Bible. That's good. Right. On the, thir- on the third day, Yom Shlishi, third day, God says the word Tov twice. Some people got to get married on, on Tuesday because of that. Because the word Tov was used twice. On the sixth day, God says Tov Milad. Very good. But that's it. I mean, here's God, the greatest creation, saying, okay, it's good. And he says, good, very good. I mean, that's all. He doesn't say, it's fantastic, it's out of this world, it's great. It's good. Here, they invent a new car, and they come along with all these adjectives to describe it. And what happens is, uh, who's the one who had this line? Uh, one of the comedians today had this line, you know. He says, General Motors creates this thing, and he says, oh, it's fantastic, it's great. And General Electric creates a new uh, washing machine, GE washing machine, and it's fantastic, it's the superlative, and so on and so forth. God creates it, says it's good. What happens? He says, the washing machine breaks down, the car breaks down, the squirrels are still running around. So therefore... Ramban posits, whenever God says it's good, it means it's permanent. Whenever said it's, it's not good, where does God say it's not good? Lotov hiot hadam levado. It's not good for a man to be alone. Whenever God says it's good, it means it's permanent. That's the way it should be. That's the way it will be. When God said it's not good, it means it's impermanent. A person who's alone is impermanent. Eventually, there'll be no memory of that person. So, it's not good, implies that loneliness cannot endure. Something will crack. And God had to relieve this by the creation of a companion. So before God created the companion, it's not good for a person to be alone, which means that loneliness cannot last. A person who's alone cannot last. Therefore, shall a person leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Rava, the famous medieval scholar, notes that being one flesh is not only in the physical aspects, but also an exclusive warm, personal relationship of care and concern. You are my priority in my life. There is one being who I can relate to more than anyone else, at the exclusion of everyone else. And that's where sometimes the in-laws can get involved. That's where they come, that's where there's fights in the family, where the in-laws come in. Who's more important? Me or your mother? Who's more important? Tell me now. So Torah says, number one, therefore a person should leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. What the Torah is telling us is, first priority is your partner is, comes first. In a marriage, partner is number one. Father and mother are number two. 
doesn't mean I can insult my in-laws. If I can get away with it. If you, if you can. <laughs> doesn't mean you can insult your in-laws. No, you're not allowed to insult your in-laws. That's a different law. That's the laws of their affairs, manners, and other things. But partners, number one. Yes. 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 The wife is always number one. The wife is always number one. Children don't even count. I mean, children shouldn't come in between husband and wife. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't really make sense. And that's why, unfortunately, there's a problem being a stepchild. Because really, usually, usually the uh, other partner becomes number one, and the stepchildren usually suffer because of that. I'm, not, I'm just generalizing. But that's... Uh, the children are not number one. The partner is number one. And even sometimes in a marriage, a partner doesn't know the secrets of, of a good marriage will put their children before their, their spouse. Big mistake. You better buy your wife an anniversary present before you buy a, your, your daughter a, a, a birthday present. The wife is more important. The spouse is number one. She always come number one. But again, I mean, the spouse should understand. The spouse gets pleasure. If I love my children, the greatest pleasure I have is when my spouse treats my children properly. And the greatest pain I have is when my spouse looks down on my children. So it, it, it works both ways, but really, usually the, the respect of the partners is number one. And that's why it's not good to interfere in discipline problems. One partner has a discipline problem with a child, and the other partner comes in and says, Don't shout at my child! Wrong. Very bad. Why? You have to show respect to the other partner first. As long as there's no abuse involved, you have to show respect to the partner first. So my child cannot be disrespectful to my spouse. The child's got to learn that. So it's complicated. Today's day and age is very complicated. I'm going to read you an article from the newspaper, a very interesting article before we finish. But the rabbi notes that being one flesh is not just physical aspects, but also exclusive, warm, personal relationship of care and concern. And for that, we talked about last week, compatibility. We need mutual respect. We need decent behavior and communication. You don't want to use words which uh, you cannot take back. You've got to be careful in a marriage. There's a red lines. You've got to draw red lines. A person has to draw red lines for themselves in a marriage. What can you say? What can't you say? Which words should never be mentioned? One of them is a D word. The D word, divorce, should never be mentioned. Because once it's mentioned, it's nearly over. Once it's mentioned and they both start mentioning it, it's already over. That D word should never be mentioned as far as possible. Uh, today's society is very hard. Um, certain swear words, certain curses, never, 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 never. They'll always remain. The stigma will always remain. It's very hard to get over them. A person should never use swear words in a marriage. And that's why a person should never use swear words at all. Because once you start getting used to them, it's out. Every time a person uses it, it's un un unbelievable, you know. Uh, you talk to people, and every, every other sentence, some people just four letter words coming out. Usually in New Jersey transit, I go on it. <laughs> We're sitting over there, and you're hearing everyone talking, and every, every other sentence is a four letter word over there. And it's not work. But uh, the rabbis in the Talmud debate the story of the rebellious son. You know, there's a case in the, in the Torah at the end of the Deuteronomy the rebellious son, Ben Sorer More. So it says, Does not listen to the voice of his father and the voice of his mother. He's a rebellious child. The commentaries ask, 
Why does it say doesn't re- listen to the voice of the father and the voice of the mother? And the commentaries answer because both parents are speaking with different voices. What does that mean? He doesn't know who to turn to for guidance. We're talking about a family which is already split apart. One, the father saying this and the mother saying this. And he doesn't listen. The kid doesn't listen. So the rabbis learn out from that. That if the parents do not at least have the facility to communicate openly with their child and they can't communicate with each other, their child cannot be punished. The problem in the family is communication. You're not dealing with a bad child. You're dealing with a broken down family. And there's a big difference over here. So therefore, the Talmud says, there is too great a disparity between parents. In temperament, or they do not speak the same language, or if one is mute or deaf, their son cannot be prosecuted because the parents do not speak with one voice. They have to be able to speak with one voice. They have to be able to communicate. As there is a oneness of the body, there has to be a oneness of the soul, a meeting of the minds. Distinguished psychologist Eric Erickson, in defining the ages of man and the dominant theme of each age, notes, the age 20s are dominated by the need for intimacy. When a person reaches the age 20s, dominated by the need for intimacy, seeking marriage or other unions during that age is an expression of that need. But becoming intimate is not a simple matter. To have trust and to risk vulnerability, a level of maturity is needed to share intimacy. So if I can't stand being hurt, I'm not going to risk it. And um, that's why marriage is so important, because a good marriage won't get hurt, or not as much. As just a one-night stand or another two-week marriage or a five-year marriage or a two-year marriage. Many of the failures in marriages today result from extended childhood, giving young men and women emotional dependence on the parents or lack of maturity or lack of emotional maturity. They cannot form adult emotional associations. Hence, the emphasis of the original prescription for companionship in Breshit is the formula is to leave your parents and cleave to your wife and husband. I don't really think today it's a problem cleaving to the, to the parents. It's just lack of maturity in general. People today don't grow up. Let me give you an example. I was in Israel a couple of months ago. My, my son is in yeshiva there. He's now 17. He's learning in yeshiva. And you think, you know, 17 is a very young age, right? 17 is young? Think so? Depends on the child? Well, in Israel, there's no choice because 18, you're in the army. 18, you're in the front lines in Lebanon. 18, you're a man. If you're not a man, you're going to be a man very shortly. <laughs> and you better be a man. You better learn to be a man. 18, you're not, you know, you're not living in luxury on a college campus somewhere. 18, you're on the front lines with a rifle or whatever it is, hiding under the bush waiting for these uh, Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon. So uh, it's a matter of maturity. And in America, we have the luxury. You know, we give our kids the luxury of taking their time to mature. Okay, 25, 26, 80, 30, I don't know what. So people take longer today to be able to form adult emotional associations. Kids are kids. I mean, 23, he's a little baby. He's not emotionally mature yet to form an emotional bond. So therefore, the idea the Bible tells us is leave your parents. What does that mean? Be independent. It's telling you to be independent. You know, the best move my father ever made was he threw us out of the house. One second. What does that mean? He says, you're 18, you're a man. Out you go. Make your own way. In England, there was a, I don't know if you know, what was the, the, the phrase used? You went out to seek your fortune. Right? That was the phrase used. 
they show pictures, Charles Dickens and all these uh, writers of the, of the 19th century, right? What was the great thing they would talk about? Copperfield. How old was he? Teens. Be out there with a pack on your back, go out to seek your fortune. That was the British mentality. And that's what, that's what gave the greatest of an empire. Who built the empire? It was these young kids out there to make their fortunes. Same thing the Wild West wasn't won by uh, these uh, immature, emotionally immature youngsters. It wasn't one like that. So uh, that was one of the best moves he made in terms of ensuring uh, that we were four brothers. We all got married in the 20s. We all got married in the early 20s. Why? If you don't have a, your father throws you out, right? You have to stand on your own feet. You have to find maturity at early age. And it's very important to find maturity at early age. And it's very important for the parents not to baby their children. Can't stress. How much can I stress it? Over 18, you're a man. You're a woman. I cannot baby you anymore. I'm not going to baby you anymore. It's, what's it called? Today it's called, what, what, there's a phrase for it. Tough love. You said it. Tough love. Tough love means not to baby. And that's one of the disasters of today. The Bible does not imply an end to the parent-child relationship. But the quality of the relationship has to change in order to accommodate emotional growth. Part of the wisdom of being a parent is to know when to hold on and when to let go. You know, unfortunately today there's not much choice. You have to let go. There's not much choice. But it's let go. It's not because the parent has to let go. It's because the child throws out the parent, basically. At an early age, the child says, leave me alone. I'm grown up already. And really the biggest children, the biggest babies, are usually the ones that say that. They have no emotional maturity. So they tell their parents, leave me alone. And really, they need it more than anyone else. The ones who say, leave me alone, they're the ones who really need it more than anyone else. Because when a person really reaches maturity, they'll realize how much they need their parents. If they were mature, they'd know that. How far does one go in the meshing process? So we said, the Torah talks about basar echad, one flesh. How far do we go in that? Um, the Torah also talks about eselo ezer kenegdo. I'll make a helper against him. Make your mind up. Helper against him. So Ramban, Nachmanides, and other commentators explain, opposite is not a reflection of one another, but a distinctly different from the other. Independent and yet intimate. And this is a very important point in marriages. We need independence in a marriage. Both partners have to retain independence. And intimacy at the same time. It's a delicate balance. They cannot submerge themselves in the marriage where they lose their identities. I know who I am. She knows who she is. And we both agree we're a partnership. I cannot force her to think like me. She not, cannot force me to think like her. And it shouldn't be expected. This is one of the misconceptions. I have to like what she likes. She has to like what I like. No. I have my own views. She has her own views. And we agree to get along. That's, that's the bottom line. The bottom line is to get along. It's not a symbiotic union. It's not a union where they think alike, and that's an immature kind of love. But think alike, it's a, they live together as one. It's a symbiotic relationship like a pregnant mother with a fetus. It's symbiotic. One mind for both. That's not the way it is in marriage. When such a fusion exists, no integrity remains for the individuals. Mature intimacy requires a deep interpersonal relationship in which both people retain their individuality. Mature love enables one to merge with another but not to become submerged. You've got to merge without being submerged. You've got to give, you've got to take without losing one's own identity, one's own individuality. The Torah, while requiring 
Basarechad, one flesh, meeting of the body. But it also says, Ezer Kenegdo. The minds should be Ezer, sometimes helping and sometimes against. If I'm an individual, I can tell you when you're wrong. If I'm not an individual, I can't tell you you're wrong. Because I've been submerged. The Torah does not advocate submersion. True love embraces, never, never stifles individuality. It's one of the major uh, things for strife for in a marriage. Too much independence, too little independence. The merging of Adam and Eve was a merging not only of two independent partners, but also of two equal personalities. What does that mean? There has to be mutual respect. Ezer Kenegdo. He's an Ezer and Kenegdo, which is equal and opposites. What does that mean? Mutual respect. I request, I respect that person for being my equal. Kenegdo is the opposite balance on a scale, equal in value and in dignity, though different functions. This means mutual respect. There has to be mutual respect in a marriage. The idea of basar echad, one flesh, was also found to have a practical approach in Jewish law. We find in the, in the uh, Birkat Amazon, the gross, Grace After Meals, there's a line over there which says, Al-Britcha Shechatan Tabisarenu, on the covenant which you have embedded in our flesh. It was referring to the Brit Milah. How can a woman say that? And the answer is, if she's married, she can say it. Why? They're basar echad, they are one flesh. The union makes the one flesh. In the laws of evidence, a person is not allowed to testify on behalf of relatives which are three stages removed. So me, I'm not allowed to testify for my son, my grandson, and my great-grandson. Or my brother, my brother's son, and his son. What about on your wife's side? Am I allowed to testify for my wife's relative three times removed? Um, So if you say the one flesh exactly, then no. Her flesh is my flesh. So the Miri says, you're right. You cannot testify. One flesh. However, Rambam says, no. It's not exactly one flesh. Man and wife are as close as possible, but they are not exactly the same. They're not exactly one flesh. And the prophet Malachi refers to a wife as your friend, your companion. And the Aramaic translation, a joint pa- partner. Not one body, one thought, but joined bodies retaining two thoughts as partners. It's a partnership. It's a friendship. Marriage is also the creation of a family. Getting back to your point of creation of a family. The Jewish people was first and still is considered a family. We refer to our patriarchs and our matriarchs. We refer to the Jewish people as one big family. That's why we all feel related to each other. Why? We're one big family. The Jewish people was first a family. The influence of the family model is so great. It casts its shadow on all of Jewish history. We still refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the fathers rather than the leaders. And to Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah as the mothers. And the Jewish people are called B'nai Israel, the sons of Israel, implying that they are parents. So we're referring to the B'nai Israel. The children of Israel, we refer to as the children of Israel. The word Jew came much later. Who's the first Jew? No, he was called an Ivri, Hebrew. He wasn't called a Jew. Who was the first Jew? Where's the first connotation of a Jew? In the Megillah. Mordechai HaYehudi. Where does Jew come from? It comes from the tribe Judah. What happened was the ten tribes were taken away.
You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.